Welcome to the Medical Republic. This is Penny, and I'm speaking this morning with Associate Professor Julian Elliott. Professor, could you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, hi, Penny. So my name is Julian Elliott. I'm a um, infectious disease physician at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, and uh, also work at Monash at Cochrane Australia. And with Cochrane, I'm working mostly on the use of new technologies and processes for high quality evidence and guidelines. I'm also the uh, executive director of the National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force that we've just set up recently. I think our listeners will be familiar with the work that Cochrane does in general, but could you tell us um, a bit more detail about your role there? Yeah, people would be aware that um, Cochrane is a, a global network of academics and others who produce high quality systematic reviews. My work really focuses on how we can do that work more efficiently. So we've developed a model we call living evidence, which is really about saying, you know, we don't actually need to make this trade-off between high quality and up-to-date we can create high quality evidence and guidelines that are constantly up to date with the latest research using new software systems, machine learning, crowdsourcing, new data systems, etc. So your job is basically wrangling evidence as it comes out and synthesizing it into a form that can inform decision making. Clearly that is what the world is crying out for now during the COVID-19 pandemic. But the scale and speed of the work that is coming out, this is really something else, isn't it? Uh, it certainly is. You know, even a few weeks ago, you would say that we were just at, at the beginning of the infodemic, as it were, the other exponential mm. curve. Um, so the actual volume of COVID-specific research was quite modest, but we're seeing that, you know, change day by day. So it's, it's definitely gone from, you know, dozens of new publications to hundreds and, um, and now really into, into thousands. So, and that, that's only going to keep growing. We know from the clinical trial registers that there are now over 600 randomized trials registered and you know many many other types of um, studies as well so over the coming months we will see a, a deluge of new research around COVID. Well okay well tell, tell us about the task force what and who does it consist of and how is it structured? So the task force is a partnership of peak clinical bodies um, for example College of GPs, ACRAM, uh, Nacho, the um, Aboriginal Health Organisation, RECP, physicians, many other specialist societies. Really, we've all come together with a, I think, a shared view that at this point, it's extremely important to have a unified view and voice on uh, the clinical care of people with COVID. You know, early on, um, and certainly is typical for these kind of emergencies, you get everyone wanting to make a contribution, which is fantastic. Um, but they can very easily lead to a kind of cacophony of voices. And I think we were beginning to see that. And so that really the purpose of the task force is to create a, a unified, consistent, evidence-based and um, up-to-date um, set of, of guidelines for Australian clinicians. How are you keeping on top of that information overload? How are you divi- sort of dividing up the work and say, do you have a triage system for what evidence needs to be considered and what? Is relevant and what can be thrown out? Yeah, so you know we have we have a team of people that have really got decades of experience of doing this sort of work. I think what's different here is just the um, the pace at which we're doing them. So I think many of your listeners would be familiar with a t- kind of typical guideline that might be updated, say once every three, five, seven years or so. So in the living evidence model that we've developed, we threw a couple of um, demonstration projects. So the National Stroke Guidelines, um, and then more recently, uh, National Guidelines for Diabetes, we've been updating those guidelines monthly. 
what we're doing now in the task force is kind of going into warp speed uh, and we're updating weekly. So that's unprecedented. I don't think anyone anywhere in the world has really um, maintained guidelines at that level of currency. Um, so there's a whole set of challenges that go with that. I mean, it's drinking from a fire hose is a bit of a cliche, but it really applies here. How many new papers did you say were being like posted and published every day? Uh, at the moment, although this is changing day by day, we're screening about 500 papers a day. You know, we have an evidence team, again, who are very experienced, who um, are doing all of those, you know, very um, highly sensitive searches, feeding them through to the team and, and doing the, um, the screening of those. That's using you know, software and we've got, we're also utilising capabilities that were developed over the last couple of years where we um, use text mining and machine learning and, and crowdsourcing to help annotate and triage or, or sift those reports. You know, then it's very much about identifying reports of in particular topic areas and particular study designs and then feeding them through to the individual evidence teams who are doing systematic reviews or rapid reviews in particular areas. So is, does the software take the first look at new work and through um, language processing recognise what it's about and then it gets uh, directed towards the people for whom that's their specialty? Yeah, so there's a, a couple of things here. So first of all, together with colleagues in the UK, we've developed a um, set of kind of machine learning and crowdsourcing processes by which we identify reports of randomised controlled trials. So that's using a platform called Cochrane Crowd. And that's a platform where really anyone in the world can go onto the platform and and start doing um, some systematic review tasks, including looking at titles and abstracts of academic papers and making a, a designation about whether that's a report of a randomised controlled trial or not. Sounds extremely um, mundane work, but it's incredibly important. And, and so that, together with um, a machine learning component, means that we can find those randomised trials much faster than we would be normally. That's then feeding into a... Um, COVID-19 specific register that, Co that Cochrane has established. And so from, from the Cochrane register, that feeds through to um, a software platform that we use called Covidence, which is a, a non-profit uh, systematic review software um, platform that I lead as well. And we use Covidence then for that um, final screening steps. So the evidence teams are screening through and, and triaging those citations into different topics. So how many humans are working on sifting this evidence? Uh, so our team's been growing rapidly. I think you'd know that this whole initiative only started about four weeks ago. We've got, I think, 17 people now in our evidence team um, managing various topics and parts of the process. But we've also got currently three guideline panels about to be six uh, together with a guideline leadership group, which is our senior clinical panel and a, and a steering committee. So I think overall we've now got over 100 people involved in the, um, in the endeavour. Uh, what is a, like a typical, I suppose, day in the life of the task force or a week in the life of the task force? <laughs> it's very much a week because we are committed to weekly updates. Um, so to give you some idea, obviously the, the evidence work is going on every day. In terms of workflow, um, it's... I think really important for people to understand that we're very, very keen to hear from clinicians what their key questions are. Um, one of the advantages of a living model is that it's dynamic. We can um, get questions from clinicians um, and we, we feed that to our panels 
who then do a kind of final step of prioritization and then that becomes the focus and the scope of those panels and they will then produce recommendations in response to that. So that's certainly one of the most important parts of our workflow, eliciting and sifting and prioritizing all of those questions. Then the evidence team will be looking at for international um, systematic reviews that might respond to those. If not, then we'll do our own evidence work. We then produce summaries of those evidence, which are then fed through to our panels. Our main panel meetings are on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Then we get a summary of that that gets sent out to our guideline leadership group on a Friday. They then meet on the following Monday to review and approve. And then it goes to our steering committee on the Tuesday and then published on Thursday. So that's our that's our current weekly cadence. What's your sort of minimum standard for a, are you using a randomised control trial as your minimum standard or are you looking at smaller, less high quality designs? Uh, no, so we're definitely looking beyond um, randomised control trials. Obviously at this part of the um, pandemic, um, the majority of research is non-randomised. And so it's not necessarily about excluding those. It's it's really about the um, critical appraisal of those research studies and then being transparent about the type of data that we have available to support the recommendations that we're making. That would, that certainly takes a lot of human nuance to appraise a study that might not fit all the usual standards when it comes to good quality evidence. Uh, you know, absolutely. Uh, you need um, very experienced people who, who can do this rigorously, but also in the current context, do it, at, um, do it at speed. You're necessarily having to be maybe a little less conservative given these extraordinary circumstances. How do, you, how do you decide how much less cautious you can be in accepting types of evidence that normally wouldn't make the grade? So again, it's, it's not so much about compromising standards. It's really about being transparent um, regarding the type of information that we have available. So, for example, I think your listeners would be aware of, for example, a, a guideline panel could make a statement that we would call a practice point. So it's really a, a consensus amongst the panel that this is a reasonable statement to make to inform practice for which there is limited evidence. We can also have consensus-based recommendations where we go through a formal evidence process. There is perhaps no evidence available to inform inform that particular question but there's still a view from the panel that it's important to make a recommendation in order to help um, clinicians deal with that particular problem and so the panel will then make a recommendation but clearly um, and transparently designate that as a consensus-based recommendation and then of course our aim is as much as possible to be making evidence-based recommendations where we've done a a, um, you know thorough and systematic um, evidence synthesis process um, and we're bringing that evidence to the panel and the recommendation is based on that evidence. And so because of those um, considerations your recommendations come in a number of different tiers. Could you run us through those? At the moment what we have are um, living evidence-based recommendations. So again this process by which we're uh, um, monitoring the evidence and if necessary updating recommendations every week and that set of formal evidence-based recommendations is um, on track to go through the NHMRC approval process um, as uh, high quality Australian guidelines should. But then in addition, we've been developing um, clinical flowcharts. So these are you know, one page 
documents that you can download from our website that give an overall summary of recommended practice. So for example, we have one for the initial assessment of people with suspected COVID-19. We have one for mild disease, moderate severe disease and critical disease. So those flowcharts uh, include a combination of the evidence-based recommendations from our formal guidelines, uh, but also consensus-based recommendations and practice points. And have you um, experienced any disagreements among task force members about how you should recommend on something and what, what processes are in place for if you do? Look, you, you always have a, a diversity of views. Um, that, that's the whole purpose of having a, a guideline panel is to bring that um, clinical expertise to play um, so it's the combination of the evidence that we present to the panel together with the clinical expertise of, of the panel members um, that is then brought into the discussion. That is the um, standard uh, practice of running a, a good guideline panel. So, you know, with strong methodological support and strong chairing, um, facilitating a discussion towards um, a formal recommendation. During this pandemic, do you think the um, the rush to publish or strictly speaking to just post non-peer-reviewed new research is leading to um, a proliferation of uh, poor quality science? I think we've always got poor quality science. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, so there's always a mix. Um, there's a mix of, you know, I think, you know, incredible science, you know, then with a kind of long tail of, of lower quality studies. Clinical questions have a have a lifespan. Um, so they tend to be born at some point, um, evolve, get to a point where that question is kind of answered or no longer relevant and then, and then fade away. So early on for any clinical question, there is always a skew towards smaller studies because by definition, they're smaller, they've been able to be done more quickly and therefore published more quickly. And then as time goes on, you'll get um, publication or access to larger, more rigorous studies. So there's no question that we're on that sort of early part of the curve and we're seeing a predominance of smaller and smaller studies with less rigorous design. So that's to be expected. I think also there's definitely a kind of buzz element. Um, so there's, um, you know, certain things, certain statements or assertions um, from studies are getting quite a lot of traction in general media, social media, in, in clinical forums, etc perhaps more than they would normally. But again, I, I would say our team and our panels are very used to dealing with these situations where you've got, we've got a, um, a kind of buzz around something. It is particularly pronounced at the moment, I must say. So, you know, <laughs> we are conscious of that. Some things that are perhaps a little different is, you know, because this is moving so quickly and there's definitely an issue where a lot of anecdote is, is getting traction that, what we're exploring at the moment are, are more formal ways for actually more rigorously collecting clinical experience, particularly from countries and centres that have had a lot more experience in dealing with people with COVID-19 than in Australia. Mm. Um, I think the second thing that's different is um, the rise of preprint servers. So um, in other scientific fields, particularly in, in maths and physics, there's been a very well-established culture for some time of posting papers to preprint servers before they've gone through peer review and there are you know there's clearly advantages of that in terms of speed of access to new research findings but i think this is really the first time that's got a lot of traction within um, biomedical research so if you just recognize that this is a um, 
a research output that hasn't yet gone through peer review. You just bring that consideration into the way that you might um, interpret and then use that information. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a number of studies that are um, getting traction in social media, particularly. Um, people would have heard of remdesivir, tocilizumab, earlier on, Kaletra, lopinavir, otonavir. I think the, the critical thing here is to be extremely cautious about um, small studies. It's not, I would say it's not difficult to do. Um, I think the challenge really is about the way that we help the broader clinical community to understand the limitations of those early studies so that as much as possible, you know, the Australia's clinical community can be supporting a consensus view, which is that um, let's also be aware of the potential harms of these treatments. Let's go through all the usual processes that we're you know, familiar with. Do it rapidly. So let, you know, let's not be tardy. We need to be um, dynamic, um, but we also need to, we just need to understand the limitations of small studies and not, not jump to conclusions before we've got more robust data. And if our listeners do have questions for you, what's the best way to submit them? Oh, so if you just go to our, um, to our website, um, so covid19evidence.net.au, there's a form there where you can um, submit your questions. And again, we, we are very, very interested in your, um, in your questions um, relevant to the management of people with COVID-19. Professor Julian Elliott, good luck with, with this and thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Not at all, a pleasure. Pleasure.